Uh, tonight's topic is on science. Now, when I first became involved in the Bhaktivedanta Institute, there was a few of us. This is it. October 1977, a month before Prabhupada left, first international conference on life comes from life. Now, that's me in the middle, and Subdhamadar and Sadaputta, Jnana, Madhava. And we did a conference, and the conference was this conference, Life Comes from Life. And these were our speakers. It was held in Vrindavan. We had some famous scientists come too, especially one, the late uh, Dr. Sudeshan from the University of Texas, who came, was prominent then and became extremely prominent. And they came to discuss, does life come from life? Prabhupada named it, or does life come from matter? Um, and um, um, you can see there some of the topics discussed, molecular biology, information theory, quantum theory, such. Uh, then, in um, last year, we did another conference um, with the Bhaktivedanta Institute. We did the same instruction Prabhupada gave in 1977 uh, when we did it, uh, bring all the devotee scientists together. This time it came out a little different. You saw there were five of us. Now you can see the crowd that came. These are the devotee scientists that showed up in 2019. And not, uh, and uh, this isn't all there are. That's all who came. We had from Russia and South America, Australia, uh, Eastern Europe, Western Europe. Uh, we didn't get anyone from Africa to attend. Um, Online, yes, but in person, no. And uh, so well, we covered almost every continent. So you can see how the Bhaktivedanta Institute um, has grown. Our actual um, mission, though, hasn't changed. And the mission is to present that life comes from life. Um, there's issues... <clears throat> The uh, I was asked to speak on material science versus spiritual science. Now, there is some thought that material science should be rejected, but Prabhupada didn't actually say that. In fact, he said the material scientists they tend to be very proud. And he said, and they have something to be proud about because of what they accomplished. So treat them with special respect. In his Prabhupada's very first book, Easy Journey to Other Planets, he praised the scientist. In the Bhagavatam, Prabhupada says, therefore all the sages and devotees of the Lord have recommended that the subject matter of art, science, philosophy, physics, chemistry, psychology, and all branches of knowledge 
should be wholly and solely applied in the service of the Lord. So the idea is that all the sciences have something, some truth about them. It's not that science is wrong. It's rather that science is incomplete. Sometimes they're wrong. I mean, when I grew up, um, I was taught not to eat butter, but margarine. It's much more helpful to eat these um, uh, hydrogenated oils like Crisco, in which they're made from corn oil or sometimes even animals, and they're hydrogenated and they look like butter. And uh, doctors or actors playing doctors would advertise on television how much healthier this is than good old butter. Of course, they were wrong. So it's not that every time a scientist says something, it's right. But it's not that every time a scientist says something is wrong. There's a scientific way to find out. Now, Christian consciousness is also very scientific. What does scientific mean? It means we can experiment. We can reproduce results. Uh, we can look at it. But there's a difference between studying the science of the world and the science of spirituality. The difference is very, very important. Now, let's say I want to study those things that I can some degree control. I can put something in a microscope. I can use a telescope. I can use an MRI. Um, if I want to study the body, I can run PET scans, um, sonograms, MRI scans, x-ray scans, chemical scans, DNA sequencing scans. I can do all of this on our bodies because it's lesser than me. I can put it in a test tube. I can control it. But if I want to study something greater than me, would I use the same set of tools? If I want to know um, what the temperature is outside, I have to use the right tool. I have tools on my desk. I have a headset. But the headset is not going to tell me the temperature. A thermometer will tell me the temperature. So you have to use the right tools. So what tools do we use to learn about something greater than us, to, something less than us we control? We slice it. We dice it. Uh, we uh, look at it in fine detail on a microscope, finer detail on an electron microscope. Now, no one, no scientist in the world has ever, ever seen an atom. No one. Why is it nobody has seen an atom? Would anybody like to unmute and tell me why no one has seen an atom? Any ideas? Anybody? Why? Why has nobody ever seen an atom? Somebody must know. Or maybe somebody has seen an atom and they'll correct me. I'm just guessing. Is it just as, as constructed? Uh, I'll, I'll say that again. Is it just a theoretical construct? 
No, atoms apparently exist. But I can't. Why has nobody seen them? Let's think about it. Because it's smaller than the structures that we're using to. Yeah, it's too small to see. I mean, there's a wavelength of light. We can see things that interact with light. It's too small. But so how do we know an atom exists? How do we know if we can't see it? We say seeing is believing, but how do we know it exists? Any idea? Um, how do we know something exists that we don't see? Now, I'll give you an example. Right now, all of you are using electricity. And you know there's a power plant, but you, you probably, you may never have seen it. You certainly probably don't know the name of anybody who works in the power plant that operates it. Can anybody name one person who is operating the power plant? No, I can't in Gainesville because it's my neighbor, but that's a different matter. Can any of you name one person who is operating the power plant? You can't, but you know someone is doing it. So seeing is not, you know things without seeing it. The way you know an atom exists is by its symptoms. You see the results of it. You can do experiments with atoms. And these experiments were done going back to the very beginning of the 20th century, in which we could look and study um, atoms by the symptoms of it, and molecules by the symptoms and elements. So some things we know without seeing, but we know by the symptoms. Similarly, that's a logic that Rupa Goswami puts forward in spiritual knowledge. Some things we know by direct observation, some things we know by inference, and some things we know by hearing from authorities. So that is very scientific. Now, since none of you have seen an atom, but you believe in it, most of you believe in an atom because you've accepted it by what? By what basis do you, any of you, believe that atoms exist? By hearing? Yeah, you heard about it from people you trust. So spiritual life is no different. We learn about things from people we trust. And by hearing from people we trust, we develop, uh, um, we develop faith. And, by, and, and uh, we can then, by that faith, we study deeper. And by studying deeper, we see, yeah, there's, some, there's really truth to this. It's the very same way in, in the processes of science and the process of spiritual life. They both follow a scientific routine. Now, the question is asked that some of Prabhupada's statements seemed anti-science. That question was asked of me. Is that true? Well, are Prabhupada's statements anti-science? Does anybody have a statement of Prabhupada that's anti-science they'd like to talk about? Anything, anybody here have a statement that they think Prabhupada said something anti-science? Uh, yes, Prabhupada. <clears throat> yes. No, no, no. So um, he, he, 
because uh, the material scientists say that the matter gives the life, but um, in Prabhupada's words, actually life gives the matter. Like So, but um, uh, was that an anti-science statement by Prabhupada? Was he, he's just saying scientists have not given a good description of life, but did Prabhupada say something against science? He did say yes. some things against science, but people have asked that question ahead of time of this talk tonight. So I'd like to know, are there any specific anti-science statements of Prabhupada that somebody has heard they'd like to talk about? I don't really believe it, but some people might say that there's no Prabhupada, there's no love in the material world. So some people might say there's there is love. Well, Prabhupada said um, uh, there's no pure love in the material world. He said the closest thing you find is a mother is a mother's love for a child. So there's some love, but let's go to science. Is there some anti-science statement that is on someone's mind that Prabhupada said something that kind of bugs him a little bit? Yes. So sometimes he said we may not have gone to the moon. Okay. Uh, um, let's see. Um, does anybody think we we went to the moon? And does anybody think we didn't go to the moon? Unmute yourself and tell me your thoughts. Don't be embarrassed. I'll tell you mine. Uh, may I? This is Neelam. Yes, Prabhupada said that uh, scientists have not gone to the moon. And I have a tendency to believe that. I think okay. he's right. Okay. Um, good. Any other thoughts? And we'll discuss it. Not really. This okay. was the only Anybody one. Okay. I don't know for sure, but I think at the same time, Prabhupada may have also agreed that we did go to the moon to some, uh, that maybe the moon was a different, that they may have been, visiting another planet or something, but I think that at the same time he did in other places maybe say that we did go to the moon, but I don't know for sure. Okay, any other comments on this? Now, I'm not gonna accuse anybody of being a lunatic when they talk about the moon, so go on. Uh, you're <laughs> muted, you have to unmute there. I think they didn't go moon planet because moon planet is so far away, nobody can go and reach there. So the uh, uh, Shastra says moon planet is the last planet, then how nobody can reach there. How they said they went to the moon planet, you know. So I'm also agreed with the Prabhupada, what Prabhupada said. Okay. Any other comments? <laughs> Prabhupada said they might have gone to another planet called Rahu. Okay, any other comments? As per scriptures, uh, there's a way if you want to go to the moon planet, um, you need to meditate and there's a procedure if you want to actually go to each planet. Mm. Okay, um, any other comments? 
it's possible they went visibly, visibly to the moon, but did not see the celestial dimension of the, that planet. Okay. Well, I was giving a class two years ago in Vrindavan, a joint class with the wonderful Malati, the GBC lady. And at the class, somebody asked us, it was an evening question and answer session, few hundred people there, and somebody asked me this question. And Malati and I gave different answers. That's very significant. At the end, she said she liked my answer better. So be it. So there's a lot of um, to unpack in this question. First is, and this is very important for those of us at the Bhaktivedanta Institute, very, very important. Um, and um, uh, uh, first thing is, um, when Prabhupada says something, how do we know if it's a fact or not? Anybody know how to answer that? Is everything Prabhupada said to be taken factual? Tough question. Most of it, yes. Uh, most of it. That means not all of it. Uh, my knowledge is not complete. So that's why I say like that. Okay. Anybody else have a comment? Something Prabhupada says, do we accept all of it? What do you think? Don't be shy. There's no wrong answers. Anybody have any question, any comment on that? Prabhupada said the hottest months of the year are April and May. It's in the Bhagavatam. Is that a true or false statement? Somebody Partially. help me out with that. What? Uh, in certain places, it is true. And while certain places, it's the May, June. June is the hottest month where I lived in Delhi when I was in India. And in um, Australia, it's, it's, it's right now. It's January, December are the hottest months. So, so it differs from place to place. Yeah, but Prabhupada didn't say that. He just said the hottest months of the year are April, May. Because when Prabhupada was writing the Bhagavatam, at that location where he was, at that time, that was the hottest months of the year. So uh, everything Prabhupada says, I mean, Prabhupada is the most amazing, wonderful, pure devotee. And he gave us a way of understanding what he said. And he gave us the science of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics means the science of understanding scripture. And Prabhupada gave us three principles for determining the truth of what he said. Because not everything he said has the same truth as other things. Um, and I'll explain that in a moment. But first... What are the three principles Prabhupada gave us for determining what he said to be true? Guru, Guru Sadhu and Shastra. Yes. The Guru says something is confirmed by Sadhus and confirmed by Shastra. Mm -hmm. So Prabhupada said many times, he said two things. They're quite interesting and contradictory. Actually, paradoxical is a word, not contradictory. Paradox are apparent contradictions for learning deeper. But when you go deeper, you find they're not. 
So Prabhupada said that he didn't have an opinion. He said, I don't have an opinion. I am just teaching Krishna's opinion. I am teaching what Krishna said. Now, he said, I don't have an opinion. So, and he said that many times. He said it always in the context that I'm teaching just what Krishna said. When he's quoting Shastra, he says, that's not my opinion, it's Krishna's opinion. So let me ask you, did Prabhupada have opinions or not? Or was everything he said just Krishna's opinion? Any ideas on this? I would think everything would be Krishna's opinion, what he said. Ah, I would think so too. But that's not what Prabhupada said. He said, he said at first he said, I never say in my opinion. What is the value of my opinion? Um, he made statements like that. He said, my opinion doesn't mean anything. Then other times he said, in my opinion, Russia is a poor country. In my opinion, um, he said many things that he said are just my opinion. So when Prabhupada was talking about things from Shastra, what Krishna said, it's not his opinion, it's Krishna's opinion. When Prabhupada's talking about the hottest month of the year, it's his opinion. So, uh, and this is discussed specifically by Rupa Goswami, the Nectar of Devotion, in the sixth chapter. He said there are details and principles of devotional service. So when Prabhupada talked about the principles, that's Krishna's opinion. When he talked about the details, it's time, place, and circumstances. Therefore, it varies. It could be his opinion. So Prabhupada made it clear he was give repeating what Krishna said at the same time he would give his opinion on different matters and that wasn't necessarily Shastric it was Prabhupada's opinion he was a person he had his opinion now the moon to me is in that latter category one time Prabhupada said I don't know how we could go to the moon it's a heavenly planet every farmer knows you plant according to moon cycles or something special. If anybody's ever worked in a hospital, especially a mental hospital, they know on the full moon night, the lunatics become loony. Why do we use the word lunatics for crazy people? I mean, I could be in a dark room. It's a full moon night. I can feel it. I know it's full moon. And a lot of people have the similar experience. The moon has a celestial subtle energy to it. We all know that. Yet, um, in order to go to the moon, we need qualifications. If I want to go to India, I have to have a visa. You want to come to America, especially under Trump, you better be a visa. You better have a visa and not be from certain ethnicities, because otherwise he won't let you in the country. So you need a visa to go anywhere. So to go to celestial places, you might need a visa. Now, I can fly into New Delhi airport tomorrow if it wasn't COVID. And 
And when I get into New Delhi airport, if I don't have a visa, what do they do? Sometimes the air, they're supposed to check, the airline's supposed to check, but sometimes they're not very careful. They don't read it. It's expired. They don't look. And then when you get to immigration at New Delhi, they look at it and say, I'm sorry, you have no visa. You have to go home. And then on the next plane, you go home. You can't even leave the airport. Now, did I actually enter Delhi or not enter India? Was I in India or not in India? You can say I was in India. I went to the airport, but I really didn't go to India. I never left the airport. So Prabhupada said they can't go to the moon because they don't have a visa. But they might be able to, like, I can go to India without a visa. I just can't leave the airport. And similarly, Prabhupada said they have to have um, uh, a very expensive, he said that time, $40,000 suit to even step outside of their space capsule. So they, they really can't enter the atmosphere without wearing a special suit. So they're not really entering into the atmosphere of the moon. So Prabhupada said they didn't go to the moon. And he, but then he said if they did go and they spent billions of dollars and brought back a bag of rocks, they're idiots. And, and I'm a geologist. And I can tell you the rocks they brought back look like the rocks that you can pick up any, many places on earth. They're no different. They're just rocks. So to spend billions of dollars to get a bag of rocks that aren't even gold or silver or something valuable, they're just rocks, kind of rocks you can find any place. That means they're stupid. So if they went to the moon for a bag of rocks, they're stupid. And if they went to the moon and had to wear suits and couldn't enter the atmosphere, then they didn't really enter the moon. So that's my understanding. Now, Sadaputa and I have looked at that in great detail, the great late scientist Sadaputa. And he did notice something. When the rockets were going to the moon, they would broadcast their velocity and their position. They would say, we are, you know, 100,000 miles from Earth going this speed. So Sadaputa, being the brilliant mathematician, plotted it out. And when he plotted it, he realized that the trajectory NASA was broadcasting, it would be impossible to get to the moon. In other words, they were either faking it or lying. Can anybody guess why they were doing that? They got a lot of money. Because of what? A lot of funding, a lot of money. No, 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 not that reason. Maybe political? It wasn't political. It was a political reason. For the prestige of the USA in the world? Not exactly. They were competing with someone. I'll give a hint. Russia? Yes. They, in Russia were trying to go to the moon. They didn't want to give away the secret of how our, what the rocket paths were. Why tell the Russians how we're doing it? Then they could do it too. So Sadaputa first said they really couldn't have gone to the moon because they're lying. And then he realized, yeah, but during the Cold War, everyone was lying. If you wanted to go to Moscow and you bought in Moscow a street map, it had so many wrong streets on it. The only good street map you can get in Moscow was published by the CIA. 
because the Soviets were convinced America was going to invade them and they didn't want to have good maps to show where everything was. It was that paranoid. When I lived in India, I lived in, um, I was during the India-Pakistani war of 1971, I was living in Bihar, which is Eastern India. And I lived near Jamshedpur, which was a steel city. Now Jamshedpur had a giant steel mill and they make the Tata trucks there. And that steel mill was glowing in the sky. So I was in the city and the whole city was blacked out. And why? Because they said, we don't want the Pakistani airplanes to find us. But the steel mill, which would have been the target is glowing bright. Why shut off the lights in the city? Plus the Pakistani air force in East Pakistan had already been wiped out. And the Pakistani air force in West Pakistan, the planes couldn't fly that far. So there was zero chance of a Pakistani plane coming. So why did they shut off the lights? Turns out just to get people riled up in the war mood. Now, unfortunately, I was in Jamshedpur and the lights went out and I didn't know where to go. And I saw a light in the distance. So I just went to that light in the distance, walked past a sleeping guard. And there I was on an Indian military base and the guard was sleeping. Then I got surrounded by soldiers and they said, what are you doing here? And I said, I don't know, just wandering around. And they took me and arrested me and thought I was a spy. Eventually they let me go, but they were so paranoid that because India was, uh, America was siding with Pakistan and the Soviet Union with India. They were so paranoid. So during the Cold War, people get very paranoid. So America didn't want to give any secrets away to the moon about, about how to get to the moon. Now, I was in Vrindavan a few years back, and I noticed an interesting phenomenon. Many, many tourist bus are coming to Vrindavan. And these tourist bus, the tourists come, very popular now, mostly Indian tourists. They come, they get off the bus, they look around, they take some pictures, and they get back on the bus, they go away, they take a picture of a sadhu, take a picture of a pig, take a picture of a temple, get a little souvenir and go away. Now, similarly, I went to Vrindavan, but before I went to Vrindavan, I spent months and months reading Satyananda Swami's books, um, Shivaram Swami's books, doing extra praying, extra meditation, get, taking guidance from my senior god brothers. How do I enter Vrindavan? I'm, I told them, I'm scared to go to Vrindavan. I, I, I may commit offenses. I don't know what to do there. And people, Burijan took me under his shelter, sat with me every day, lunchtime, really helped me enter Vrindavan. So by the time I got to Vrindavan, and after I was there, I felt I was in a spiritual place. It really did feel that way to me. I'm not so spiritual, but if there I could even dull me, could see it's a spiritual place. Now, I did all this hard work going there. Is it the same thing as these tourists who just show up for 15 minutes uh, on a bus, maybe an hour, 
uh, no preparation, no purifying themselves. They're not even vegetarian or anything. They go to Vrindavan, maybe on the way to Vrindavan, they're eating a chicken sandwich or something, who knows? And they get there, get off the bus, take a picture of the cute sadhu and the cute pig and leave. It's not the same experience. So similarly, the astronauts who have no spiritual qualifications go a long distance to the moon. They get there. They're, they can't even enter because they don't have the right body. They have to wear this expensive suit. Then they come home with a bag of rocks. They're like the tourists who entered Vrindavan. Yeah, they went to Vrindavan, but they really didn't. Similarly, yeah, they may have gone to the moon, but they really didn't. So that's what Prabhupada was saying. Because sometimes he says they went to the moon. Sometimes he says they didn't. Sometimes he said they might have gone to Rahu. This is what Rupa Goswami calls in the Bhaktara Samrita Sindhu, a detail of devotional service, not a principle. So that's my answer to the moon question. I hope I didn't drive anybody to become a lunatic. Thank you. That was wonderful. Okay. Um, is there any other area, I was asked this question, like I said, about science. Is there any other area of science that somebody finds disturbing? Something about science that somebody finds just a little uncomfortable. Um, uh, well, <clears throat> yes. The book, the book Life, Comes, Life Comes From Life. Yeah. It's not necessarily the disturbingness of, of the science, but uh, or what he's saying, but it's I hear the word rascal a lot and and in that book and my sister and her husband are scientists and they were they were actually given that particular book to read from a devotee in, in Hawaii and it really turned them off and they were we, we were like <clears throat> they were reading and stuff. And, and then they were given that book by someone and it, it like turned them off and they've like been really, so that, that kind of part of, of how he addresses the scientists as rascals so much, maybe, I don't know if that. That is a very good question. Yeah. My answer is going to shock you. Are you ready to be shocked? Yes. That book is not what Prabhupada said. The book is being withdrawn by the BBT. I was on a call with them recently. I have a paper I can give you written by one of our Bhaktivedanta Institute scholars about that book. Um, the book um, was, a com com Prabhupada had these conversations with Shruptamadar Maharaj. Mm -hmm. They were uh, in English. Uh, Hamsa Duda then translated the book the conversation to German and was the first one to produce the book Life Comes From Life. When he translated it, he took a liberal interpretation. His own mood was that the scientists were great rascals. And there is, we went through the book. There are five, one time, five words in a row that are actually exactly Prabhupada's words. Prabhupada's mood was the scientists are rascals when they say they can create life and never have done it. But the actual mood of what Prabhupada said is so different than that book. Sure, he said they're rascals sometimes, but that was a minor point. 
Hamza Duda decided to make it a major point. Unfortunately, when the BBT produced the book, instead of producing it from the original English, they translated the German back into English. I have no idea why. So we produce a scholarly paper demonstrating, because we have the original tapes, we have the original manuscripts in English and German, we have the whole history. So we demonstrated beyond a reasonable doubt that the book Life Comes From Life is not what Prabhupada said. And the book is being withdrawn and our uh, BI is gonna, for the BBT, we're funded by the BBT, will reproduce that book. So the feelings that your brother and sister have is, does not convey correctly how Prabhupada saw life comes from life. If you like, and you send me an email, I'll put my email in the chat. I can even send you the academic paper on the book written by a PhD in the history of science. Does that help you? Yeah, you're on mute. Yes, it does. Thank you so much. They'll probably really like to see that paper. Uh, well, then I send me an email. I put my email in the chat and I put the Bhaktivedanta Institute um, website in there. I don't know if that paper is on our website or not because um, I'm the director of the Institute, but I don't keep the website. If I have the paper, I'll, um, I might even have the paper right here. If so, uh, uh, I'll put it in the chat for everyone. <clears throat> uh, let's see. Um, yes. Wow. I think I have the paper right here. Let's see. If I have it right here, I'm happily going to attach it. Yes, I have the paper right here. And I will um, uh, gladly attach the paper to the chat right now. And if you have any questions, you're free to write it. But you've asked a really good question. And it is a um, disturbing problem. Let's see. There's a, a trick to sharing files. Um, ah, here it is. Now I, I am still learning these things. Um, okay. Um, is there, a, but I'm glad you asked that question. Otherwise, I might not have brought that up. That is not Prabhupada's mood. Uh, though sometimes Prabhupada did say our boot in their face, but only when they said life comes from matter, something they've never proven, which makes no philosophical sense. You cannot understand science deeply without, you can't understand physics without metaphysics. And the BI is a combination of physics and metaphysics. And I'm sure Krishna Kripa there will agree with me. I'm sure of that. Um, so are there any other, uh, we're almost at the time when I'm supposed to be asking questions according to the schedule I was given. So are there any other questions on this area? I'm going to attach that file momentarily. But uh, uh, any other questions you have on science and Krishna consciousness and the connection? If not, I'll show you something interesting. 
But at first, I want to make sure that there is no other question on here. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll attach that file in just uh, a moment. Um, let me see. Okay. Here it is. And... Uh, I'm still getting new at the art of doing everything in my life in Zoom. But now I can attach the file and I'll show you something interesting. I've showed this to some folks in Houston before, but some of you might not have seen it. So I'll be very pleased to show this to you. Um, let's see. Okay, um, here it is. Uh, let's see. Okay, share screen. And this is the new headquarters for the Bhaktivedanta Institute in Gainesville, Florida. We own that house, just took possession. I'm doing some remodeling now. It used to be the president's house for the University of Florida. It's a beautiful historical mansion, a mile from the university in the best of places for us. And um, uh, uh, all of you are invited to visit us. That is our new headquarters. We are starting our uh, headquarters with a um, 3,000 book library. And uh, the idea is that researchers will come and research the important issues of consciousness, evolution, ecology, the very, very important issues that mean, uh, uh, the, the very, very important issues that um, as devotees who want to be intellectually significant in the world, the issues we need to deal with. In Prabhupada's last year on his life, he put so much attention into the Bhaktivedanta Institute because Prabhupada felt that unless we make a cogent presentation in ways that are scientifically valid, that the innocent people, if we don't do it, they will be swayed into just abject atheism. Now, I'm going to share with you a few other topics of interest. I'm trying to find that article here and to attach it. Uh, one of the projects we're doing with Akanda D. Prabhu in here, I've attached that file now so you can all have it. One of the projects we're doing is called the Atma Paradigm. This is being done by the brilliant Akhandadi in England, the Prabhupada disciple, long-term president, not anymore, but in the Bhaktivedanta manner. And what he has done is presenting a series of lectures. I'm going to give you the YouTube link and called the Atma Paradigm. He's combining the latest in scientific developments with the um, latest in scientific developments along with 
the best of metaphysics. And it's a about a 25-part series. It's every Thursday at one o'clock Eastern time, but you can watch it whenever you like on YouTube. I'm sending the YouTube link. If anybody is interested in understanding the subject matter of science and philosophy, you will not get a better education period than by watching the Atma paradigm. I promise you two things. One, you won't be bored. And two, every week there's a cliffhanger and you're going to, once you get started, it's like watching one of these serial adventure stories. You, you're going to have to watch the next adventure. So I sent you that link. It's in the chat. Let me make sure that link works. So we don't have that much time left. What other questions might somebody have on science, religion, the Bhaktivedanta Institute, or anything else that maybe I can help with? I love questions and answers. There's 21 of you on here. So somebody, is there anything that you always wanted to ask and were too shy to ask? You can unmute and ask. You can put it in the chat publicly. You can, if you're a little shy, you can put it in the chat Privately, remember, the only dumb question is the one not asked. Though sometimes people did ask Prabhupada some odd questions. One lady asked Prabhupada, why do you shave your head? And Prabhupada goes, why do you shave your legs? Better, right. better warm legs and cool head. That's right. <laughs> And that was a good answer. So, but um, there are no bad, any other questions any of you have, please put in the chat or uh, raise your hand or um, unmute yourself. I'll give you a moment to think. I know Christian Creep has some things burning. I, uh, I don't have anything burning. But, ah. but I do have a, here, here's a question that maybe you can answer, because we had a devotee here for some weeks giving classes about science and how to preach to scientists. Um, this person is not particularly known as a scientist, but um, I, I personally have found that if we just stick to what we do know within our book, um, we can have a very gentlemanly con you know, conversation with any scientist, unless he's just an abject rascal that's so against us that he can't hear anything but uh, i i find it's it's not so complicated to just talk with an educated person about the science of the soul uh, but we just stick to our scriptures on it and and try to be gracious that that you're having this opportunity to talk to to, to another intellectual like that um could you just comment on that a little bit because he was insistent that everybody should learn to preach to scientists and i thought it's such a small field very important, but, but how many people bump into scientists, you know, on a regular yeah. basis? Uh, 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 I, un unfortunately, I, I cannot uh, uh, agree with that. Um, uh, 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 I, I, I think uh, um, everybody, you know, what does what preaching to scientists mean? I'm not even uh, a super fan of the word preaching because it can easily be um, misused. Um, and uh, 
uh, it means to me, I like the word sharing. If somebody's interested in something I have to say, I'm going to share it with them. And they can share things with me. You know, remember, God gave us two ears and one mouth. The way Supdhamadamaraj was so successful with the scientists, he listened. Just like Lord Chaitanya, when he was with the Mayavadis, he listened. He listened till finally they shut up and said, well, what do you have to say? And then the brilliance came. And when I used to go to the American Academy of Religion with Tamal Krishnamaraj, I'd watch him listen for hours and sometimes to abject nonsense, but he just listened patiently. But then when it came time for him to speak, people absorbed every single word. And I watch a master at work. And so similarly, um, I'm not trying, when I'm with the scientists, trying to convert them into theists. Most scientists, you're not going to change their mind anyway. We have a dialogue. We make friends with them. Uh, those are very atheistic. I'm not going to do much with them at all. Those who are innocent, well, I'll dialogue with them. Um, but in doing so, then the very innocent people who listen to the scientists will understand that there is another side. This japati can be buttered on both sides. And the one side is a materialistic description of how life happens, which is very incomplete. You'll see in the Atma paradigm, it's missing so much. And then there is the side that says there are great advances in science, but there's many things that can't be explained without metaphysics and spiritual insight. And that's the other side of the chapati. And so when the opportunity comes, we can present it. Radna Swami gives this great story. When he was in the 80s in Ohio, and I had a center in Ohio, he used to come visit me, did this college tour. And he told me this story. He was at Kent State University, which was a, um, uh, a state school, and they did not allow proselytizing on campus. And students don't want proselytizing. And students, Prabhupada really wanted us on the campus in a big way. I have many quotes I didn't read to tonight, but how important it was to Prabhupada we'd be on college campuses, almost more important than any other place. And so he was on the campuses doing cooking classes. And these Christians came and they wanted to get him thrown out. So what they did, is they took a book and in the book, there was a hidden microphone and they would ask him questions. So what is your religious belief? And they'd hold the book right up, right up to his mouth. I mean, it was like the three stooges trying to pull off something. It was obvious what they were doing. So Radna Swami would say, you want to know what I'm doing? I'm cooking dinner. They say, yeah, but what's your philosophy? My philosophy is you have to have not too much salt and not too much pepper, and you have to spice it right and cook with love and devotion and, and, and cook nicely and make sure your hands are clean. Well, why are you doing that? Well, because people are hungry. And, and whatever they did, he would answer in that way. So they kept coming week after week. Finally, they stopped coming. Then the miracle happened. They stopped coming. And when they stopped coming, I mean, they were so obnoxious and obvious. The other students then cornered Radna Swami. He said, look, 
we, you're, and he was there in a dhoti and everything. He says, you're cooking these great dinners. You're teaching us how to cook. But there's a reason you're doing it. There's, some, there's something that motivates you. We want to know what your philosophy is. And we're not going to even eat what you're cooking till you tell us what it is. And then they were ready to listen. And then they, when he spoke, they listened deeply. They imbibed every word. And it was very successful. So Radha Swami taught me, when you go to a college, the best thing you, the less is more. So trying to force our philosophy on scientists is silly. And Prabhupada didn't want that. And Sarup Maharaj was expert at making friends with them, cultivating relationships. He didn't tolerate atheistic arguments. And I have a whole book here you can have on all the arguments Sarup Maharaj put forth. It's, a, it's a really a very, very good, very interesting read. Um, he didn't want, um, you know, if somebody gave out very atheistic arguments that were weak, we, of course we'll blast holes in it. What else can we do? But that wasn't the main thrust. Main thrust is make friends with the scientists and, and get an opportunity for the innocent people to show that there's some doubt. Yes, they've done something wonderful, but there's something missing. And that was in Prabhupada's very first book was Easy Journey to Other Planets, written in the 50s. And in it, it begins praising the scientists, what they've done, but they left something out. So that's the main point. I hope that uh, answer helps Krishna Kripa Prabhu. For all of you know, Krishna Kripa is one of my dear old friends from way, way back. Mine too. Very good. Um, we only have um, 45 seconds left. Does somebody have a comment a reflection, um, a, a, a criticism of Krishna Kripa, not me. Uh, anything they'd like to, <laughs> anything they'd like to add or subtract? Hare Krishna. Uh, yes. Yes, Prabhu. <clears throat> I haven't shaved and I don't have on T-Lock. The reason I'm not going to show my face. Um, a question. Oh, that's fine. Uh, don't worry about that. A question, Prabhu. And here in the Americas. <clears throat> Uh, so far as the senior devotees that put 30, 40, 50 years into the, the movement, so far as them having a sh shelter like a, like a home where we can take care of them at the end of their lives, would that be a, a, an impossible uh, adventure? You think that when we get support, if we had a place to take care of the senior devotees, you know, to have a, a staff with doctor, uh, nurses, and a place where they can be surrounded by devotees as when they leave their bodies. I mean, just a thought. Well, uh, it, it's a very good thought, and it's a really nice uh, thought. Um, it's happening all over. Uh, uh, here, uh, there's um, uh, a uh, program, Rambaru does one. Um, forget her name in Philadelphia, is doing another one. Uh, there are devotees being trained all over to be death doulas. One of my best friends here, Jai Taitanya, is uh, becoming a death doula now. Um, there's a retirement center in Vrindavan where Alachua is planning its own kind of 
retirement hospice facility. We're a little behind on these things, but it's sure. slowly happening. So it ought to happen. There's a keen interest in it. Um, uh, you, you, you know, the death rate, if we like it or not, is 100%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and always has been and always will be. Um, you know, it's just a matter, it's just a matter of when. So it's really needed and it's slowly happening. But there's a cadre of people being trained up now to be to help with this wonderful transition. One of the best experiences I ever had when I was a teenager is working in a hospital and seeing people die and putting the tags on the toes and taking the bodies to the morgue and seeing, because in America we hide death and disease and it woke me up. And then I ran into New York, devotees chanting Hare Krishna around that time and put it all together. And that experience helped make me a devotee. Jai Hare Krishna. Yeah, okay, thank easy, you for that nice question. Yes, easy journey to other planets. I found in a found in a pile of trash in Beaumont, Texas, back in '76. <laughs> uh, uh, very good. Uh, uh, and, see, even from a dirty place, we can take gold. Yes, and and on uh, speaking of scientists, uh, there was a a play that Pajapati Prabhu did. Um, I, it has something to do with God, but he was saying that, um, you know, if you desired a home, you just couldn't take a stick of dynamite and set off some dynamite and say, oh, I want a mansion. So similarly, I mean, there has to be a creator behind this universe. I mean, it's, it's, it didn't happen with some great explosion and here we are. So that's, if you uh, just look at it from a common sense perspective on, you know, that just look around you. God is everywhere, you know. So. Uh, let's say there was a big bang. There was or not, uh, we won't debate, but let's say there was. The, uh, the theory is that there was a bang and then things organized. And if some of the constants of the universe, such as Planck's constant, other constants, weren't there, According to material science, life could not exist as we know it, at least. Yet they're perfectly arranged. For that to happen, there had to be a certain amount of information. But where does this information come from? It can only come from consciousness. So the Atma paradigm is showing how in order to fill the information gap, there has to be another element. That element is consciousness, which is non-material. That's some of the things we're working on. We're producing... We're in, the, we're in the process of producing five different books right now. There's been a dearth of books on science and Christian consciousness for years and years, a few smatterings here and there. Of course, Vruta Karma has done some great work, but there's, the books are, are far between. So we're working on five of them right now. If anybody has any abilities that wants to help with the Bhaktivedanta Institute, they should either you know, they're science or editors or whatever, or social media experts. And that's what interests them. They can always write to me and we'll happily engage them.